Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On today's episode, we're delighted to be speaking to Ian Wainwright of Brokering. Ian's extensive experience in the insurance industry spans brokers, insurers and MGAs and for his latest venture, he's teamed up with Stuart Randall to introduce the fascinating concept of book leasing to the broker market. In this podcast, you will understand what the concept of book leasing is about why smaller brokers need to get involved to ensure their interests are represented and how, and the need for a digital presence as more and more VSME businesses transact online. Good afternoon, Ian. Thank you so much for coming on the Insurance Breakers podcast, Take 27, uh, for us to do our uh, our chat. I'm great. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, sir. Delighted to be here. So, one of the things that um, we've discussed previously and that I think is very, very interesting is your background and how it has led you to your current uh, uh, business proposition. Would you like to tell us a bit about both? Yeah, so I've been in the industry uh, for over 40 years. I know it doesn't look like it. Um, running both broking and insurance company businesses. Um, it just happened that when I was leaving Broken Network at the end of 2019, he was looking for another business and stars aligned. So Stuart and I, Stuart said, well, now's a great time we can work together after, after all this time. Um, Stuart is a great ideas man, really, you know, he, he has some rubbish, but he has some really good ones. Um, actually the blindingly obvious that no one else has seen but only Stuart um, and the one idea that he had created the business that we're running together now called Brokering Limited um, and the idea is about bringing two sorts of regional brokers together um, the first group are those that are probably I don't know Three to five million GWP. Uh, those brokers are probably in their forties or early fifties, um, and have got great ambitions to probably double or treble in size before they sort of hang up their boots. Um, the problem with that sort of broker is not their energy and enthusiasm, which they've got in booking loads, but unfortunately, it's a time and skill deficit. So. They spend all their time dealing with clients and broking clients and IT and all of those other things. They don't have the time to devote to doing what I call mergers and acquisitions activity. And it's broadest, necessarily about buying people per se, but a lot of them don't have the capital resource to do that. So that's another service that we bring to the party. Um, but they also probably don't have the skill set to do it either. So whilst they'd like to do it and know they've probably got to do it in order to get to where they need to get to, concentrating on, you know, that BAU, their organic growth, keeping the shit straight. They don't have that, that really, that, that 
bandwidth to do what they want. Um, and that's where we we provide that not only the time for them to do that. So we're doing a lot of the the legwork around that M and A activity. Stuart and I, because of our past experiences, have got that skill set to help those brokers do that. Um, what we're then doing is that we're matching them up with great swathe of the smaller brokers in the industry and that sort of one to one and a half million pound broker who don't have the we've reached a sort of they're probably in their late 50s early 60s they're probably because of the size of the gwp and maybe they've got a bit too much personal lines there they're off the radar of the consolidators who are very active at the moment and these this group of individuals have probably spent, I don't know, 35, 40 years in the industry. And whilst they, when they were 40 or 50, had, had got the time and the energy to work five or six days a week, are now reaching a time in their life. And it's brought really more into focus with the last 12, 18 months of COVID. It's made people really sort of examine what they want out of life and working five or six days a week, you know, 10, 12 hour days, that time of life, they're going, there's got to be a better way than this. Their problem is, is that there's probably not many people that are interested in buying them. Um, they probably wouldn't get enough money to keep them for the next 30 years uh, in the style that they want to become accustomed or have become accustomed to. Um, and therefore there's, there's a sort of a, they're between a rock and a hard place. So what we do is we match them um, up with one of the brokers that are slightly larger, that three to five million. But there's no acquisition goes on. So the larger broker doesn't have to find the capital to buy anybody. And equally, the smaller broker doesn't actually have to sell up. What they do is that they lease their client book to the slightly larger broker, which means they still own the client book. So psychologically they still own it they've not had to sell up which is final end game for them but they don't have to psychologically do that at this point in time but through leasing their book to the larger broker what they do do is they give up all the bits that they don't like doing and probably take half of their time so they keep all the client servicing stuff they lease or get rid of the compliance, IT, all that bit that they don't like. Now, that allows them either to downsize their life, so instead of working five or six days a week, they work two or three days a week. If you're into, you want to go semi-retire, is, is great. So, you know, you do a bit more of what you want to do, but still own your client book, still keep the grey sales going. Um, but conversely, there might be a group, um, and we've got one at the moment, who actually would like to do a bit more new business with the extra time that he's created rather than compliance, regulation, etc. So by doing so, they, the little broker manages to maintain his personal income. The rest of that income, the commission and fee income goes to the hook broker, the slightly large broker who gets paid for essentially doing that back of which they're probably better at um, in any case. Do you, so the union broker, the smaller broker, um, are, are they usually a one-man band? And if not, what happens to their premises and staff and, and things like that? 
So um, they are probably, they might be a one-band man band, but it's probably unlikely. They probably have maybe one, two staff. Um, now, in the case of the staff, it's about if they, they will need account handler resource, even if they move across. So there's probably a conversation between the hub and the union broker that if this million pound book of client business moves across, who's going to do the, you know, that handling type role and does the hub, hub broker need those additional resources? So in some cases, they will get two feet across. In some cases, they might also retire at that point because they could be well of an age where they want to give up anyway. So this is an ideal opportunity to do it. And in some cases, there might be some redundancy. So I think it's the horses for courses. It's difficult to say this is what happened in every case. In the and case presumably, what you guys are doing is some of that negotiation and support between the hub and the union, sorry, broker. Yeah. So so whilst there's a principle involved in terms of leading clients from union to hub broker, all the other bits that happen around it, like what happens to the staff, what happens to the premises, no fixed model. It, but of course, by moving across from one to the other, there is also this economies of say, you know, economies of scale and saving cost. But ultimately, that's where the hub broker can leverage their side. Um, How much but... involvement do you have in terms of, because in terms of integrating the businesses, because although it's a leasehold arrangement, there has to be some sort of integration of process. And my experience and lots of the conversations I've had is the hub brokers obvious uh, often are so um, in the business as as you've described it that their processes perhaps are, have been developed from a reactive nature rather than a proactive nature and they need a little bit of work so integrating into that type of business must be quite difficult is that something you guys help with it is yes yeah. so part of what we offer is not just that matchmaking between one and the other and then walk away that's not what we do at all this is we're in it for the long term just like the other two parties so one thing that we help with is, is obviously the inevitable disputes that happen um, because they're not used to each other. They, they, both sets of brokers are fiercely independent. So when you bring them together, there is this inevitable friction that you have to get over um, and that both parties need to, a bit like most other relationships, they have to do some compromising and such like. So we help manage that. So we're there as the, the referee, the arbiter, the, the identifier of best practice about how it will work better if you do it this way. And we're not just there whilst we do that integration, actually, we're there for the continuation of the relationship, because again, in 12 months time, there'll be an issue that sets them both off. And we have to then go in and go, guys, look, you just need to it's a, through the other the eyes of the other person and compromise. Um, but so also there's a like, negotiation aspect. There is a nego there's a huge negotiation bit, really. Um, maybe we're the relate bit for brokers yeah. rather than marriages. Um, <laughs> That's your help. USP, relate it for is, brokers. It's just, it's just going, and Stuart and I have been in the business for 40 years in the industry, and we've seen this so many times, and it's just people taking a step back going, come on, it's not the end of the world. There is a bit of compromise here and we can all work together. 
you're right, the other part of it is integration. So Stuart and I have done acquisitions of other businesses in the past, both big and small. And actually, sometimes the larger businesses, in the integration is easier because there's less emotional baggage. The issue with the union and the hub brokers is that huge amounts of emotion because it's their babies. You know, when you buy an insurance company or a very large broker, they're just corporate entities. And there's, interestingly, less emotional attachment, whereas in the smaller cases, huge amounts of that. And it's getting beyond that emotional attachment where actually this is the best thing. Um, yes, so we're there to help that integration, whether that's one set of you know, compliance or regulatory process as opposed to another about systems, the IT systems, a transfer of data, all of that sort of thing, which we help both sides do because quite right, not only will they think that they're in the right, that default position, but also they sometimes don't have the time to do it. Um, they're both time poor and Stuart and I are there to help that, that time bit really which is the problem with all regional brokers and M&A activity. It's always a time thing as much as I don't think it's thing. necessarily M&A activity. Our experience is very much it being a time and resource uh, constraint in terms of some of the management processes, some of the strategic direction, planning, implementation of, marketing, all of that kind of stuff. You, you, a lot of businesses actually outside of the insurance industry, it's reactive because that's how things, you know, it's just how things happen. And then it's very rare you get time to step back and go, I'm gonna put a proactive hat on here and what do I need to change? Which processes have friction? Where could I be more efficient? Uh, and all of that kind of stuff. So I don't think it's just M&A and activity or just insurance brokers, to be honest. Can I ask a question which you may or may not want to answer? How do brokering make money from this? So we, in order to provide that integration and that ongoing arbitration type process, we take a small percentage of the in mission income. And so, yes, we're not a charity. We're not doing it for nothing. Um, and actually, all sides actually benefit. So we take a small percentage of the commission fee income of the union broker. Uh, the union broker is taking a percentage of the commission of fee income, but it largely relates to what they probably take out of the business now. So we've got a case on the go, on, go, on the go at the moment. It's best to use an example in all of these things. So this broker generates about £200,000 worth of commission of fee income. They want to do the union broker type with a hub. This individual because of the cost of premises and stamp and IT, all of those, you know, FCS levies, you know, whether it's the, you know, to Eber or whoever, if you take all of those into account, this individual takes home about thirty-five to forty thousand, which is incredible when you think about it. You know, it's a really small percentage of the overall pot. For this individual, if you say to him, well, by the way, your income, your personal income of 35, 40,000 is not going to be affected because, you know, you can do that. There is room there for us to take a small percentage, but also for the hub broker then to go, actually, if I've got to, you know, two peer across one or two members of staff, because 
service the book business, as well as do all the compliance and all the operational stuff, then there's still sufficient money for them to earn. And if they can leverage some of the commissions and fees, then of course they get, they're the beneficiary of that. So actually all parties from a financial point of view go get what they want. And this is about making sure everything's fair because one of the things that Stuart's identified and I totally buy into it is everybody gets what they think is a fair deal out of it. A bit like any relationship work, it's got to be equal and fair. And if any individual party is getting more than anybody else, not equitable, will collapse. So a bit like a good marriage. Um, and my my own, you know, we'll, my wife and I are celebrating our ruby. Ah, that, congratulations. Um, in a few months' time, thank you. Um, we've only got there because both parties have compromised along the way. It's not about being one more equal than the other. And I think that's the same in these brokering relationships. Everybody's got to get what they want out of it. So in this case, the union broker is downsizing his life, what he wants to do. In fact, with the extra time, he's going to try and do a bit more new business. But his income's not been affected, and he gets rid of the stuff that he hates, which is the compliance and the IT and the back office. The hub broker gets what they want because they've increased their, their bottom line, they've increased their size, they can leverage some commissions on the book that comes in and they're getting a decent income to recompense them for doing all of that stuff. And we get some money out of it for that ongoing management of the relationship, helping with integration, all of those other things that they want to do. I think it's quite interesting because we've done quite a lot of market segmentation across the insurance broking industry, as you can imagine we would. Um, and it's quite interesting how there are really three quite distinct categories. You've just identified the union style broker, so maybe up to five employees, um, income between a million and million and a half GWP, etc, uh, etc. Et the mid-size, and that's quite a broad group actually, and then sort of the bigger players, the consolidators and the um, and the uh, sort of wham companies, and that that spread, it's 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 almost you could almost box it up, couldn't you? You can, like, in you fact, can... yeah. We we've done some research, but actually, Stuart and I just know instinctively that there's, we've we've seen the market change over the last forty years. Um, in fact, when I joined the industry, there was a Labour government in power at the time in the late seventies, before the seventy nine election. And in 1978, the Labour government were talking about nationalising parts of the insurance industry. Have you said that to, you know, to the rank and file today? They, I don't think even the Labour government consider now nationalising it. But it was like the flavour of the month in 1978 Britain. So over that 40 years, the broken community, as you've said, there used to be another group, but they've largely been bought by the consolidators. So there was sort of the bigger, there was the national brokers and there weren't consolidators years ago, but there was the national brokers and the consolidators. You tend to put those into the same sort of group. There was the second group, which were the large regional players. That's, they were tended to be members of brokerability, Stuart's original business. And they were the 
I don't know, the 10 to 20 million type broker. Now, they've largely been bought out because they were the baby boomer generation. They were my and Stuart's contemporaries, essentially. They've largely stepped up. Um, and, and there's of course, a few still else, hanging around. There's a few hanging around, but there's very few. Um, and in fact, there's been a recent report that actually, in terms of those, there's probably only about 35 sale, you know, or possibly in existence that would be interested in selling. So it's quite a bit of reducing. And then you're right, the next group of that three to five or three to eight million, um, still in their 30s to 50s that want to make, there is a group of those. Some of them are older, but there's a group of them that still want to grow. And then you're right, there's that. And the biggest group of all in terms of number is that fourth group, that little group, where they're one to one and a half million. Um, the issue for them is that within brokers, there is these glass ceilings that you get to. And, and this group have probably grown their business to one, one and a half million and struggled to grow it any further without either doing something completely different. Um, and they just carry on as they are. The problem is, is they've now reached a point age-wide where they're going, I can't carry on for the next as I am for the next 10 or 15 years, because, you know, from a physical point of view, it, it will probably kill me. Um, I think also there's another element at play for that group of brokers, which is, um, has, was happening before COVID, COVID has highlighted, um, is um, there's a massive change going on in, in, in sales, in, in, in sort of buyer behavior, a massive revolution in terms of, and I hate the word revolution, in terms of digital presence, profile, um, tech that you can put in place to maximize your prospecting, your um, sales conversion, generating leads. And all of that stuff requires expertise that is ever-changing on a daily basis and time to really look at it and implement and and the winners out of you know any industry are going to be the ones that can embrace that or bring someone in to to embrace it for them and and where you've got sort of non-engagement with that change in in the world that's sort of also playing a part in this do you agree yeah definitely in that smaller broking they're, they're in they're in a pincer movement to say so on one side, you've got that, that changing customer profile or the way that customers buy insurance. And most of their customers will be in the S of SME. So they'll be the small ones. They won't have many big customers, you know, if at all. They might have a couple of larger customers, the more M in the SME. But their smaller customers, the newer smaller customers, will tend to be buying on stuff online. Um, although research say even the smaller customers still prefer that advisory type insurance but there is still a group that so they're under pressure on that side from the tech revolution and the how people buy business then on the other side of the pincer movement is the compliance so if you go back 20 years there was very little compliance in terms of the way that insurance was sold where this generation comes from they're now having to you know record in microscopic detail what they do and how they do it so this group this generational group who again are in that as i said that late 50s and 60s are being caught between these 
between these two pincers um and it's getting increasingly difficult for them so they're they're finding it difficult to devote time and energy particularly when they don't understand the tech revolution very well i, I hold my hand up because i'm not the same generation as my children who are fully you know in their mid-30s and are fully immersed into that um and they're also struggling with the compliance regime which they're having to do the same as what a national broker would do with very limited resources and not the skill set in larger brokers they have full-time compliance officers because of you know the plethora of regulation that they need to take so you're right it's from a mindset point of view they struggle but but also from a time and energy and whatever to do it so you feel for them because what they enjoyed a, was 20 years ago it's not what they enjoy now well it's a difficult it's a difficult um sort of dilemma and again i don't think it's bespoke to insurance brokers uh, although the compliance aspect certainly um but this this um the vsme as a general rule struggles with some of this reactive um, resource issue because as a small business and I'm speaking as a small business myself we've got five of us in the office um, we've got you know different every different hat we wear and we all wear multiple hats and I'm very lucky that I've got a very supportive team um, but it's the same um, the same problems that happen for uh, VSMEs all over and unless you are so strict with your Monday's a management day, management and strategy, and there are no meetings, and we do nothing but talk about where the business is going and, and how we're going to get there. And, and that's quite a difficult thing to do once you've got multiple clients and you're balancing client work as well. One of the things that I found really interesting, so my co-director, David Rothall, who I think you know because he has also been in the insurance broking market for all of the... Uh, various consolidators etc uh, for 40 plus years we were having a conversation about some um, research he did in one of his previous roles uh, and that was about this sort of the shift in the bar so if we think back to direct line and how that basically revolutionized the the, the personal lines market and set a bar here for um, for online sales and that bars just creeping incrementally because I buy my insurance online. I wouldn't dream of going to a broker for my two business, three businesses. I don't need to. There are packages that fit exactly what I need, how I need it. And that VSME, one man band, tradesman, it, 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 the bar's just creeping up slightly, you know? So you're also competing with that kind of change in the marketplace. Well, it's a bit like, it's slightly hypocritical, actually, of particularly large organisations like the CBI local and national government where they go we want the high street to stay as it is so we want people locally buy locally of little smes because you know according to one frenchman we're a nation full of shopkeepers um and actually the uk is a nation full of small micro not all businesses of micro businesses because actually we all like running our own business. I think it's very much in our Anglo-Saxon nature. I don't know what, there is a psychological thing about it. The problem is, is that the government 
and society does not make that very easy because whilst on one hand you'll hear people going oh i'd like the high street i'll buy from you won't they they'll go online and buy like everybody else because it's easier and cheaper and then in addition the government then adds a layer of regulation to the very to everybody which means that actually the micro and the small businesses just cannot exist not only because they can't compete with the large in terms of price, but also the compliance regime is exactly the same. So you're almost setting them up to fail. I don't know how little businesses survive. But if you ask any customer, any person in the UK, would they like to buy from a great PLC conglomerate? Would they like to buy from their local SME? You know what? They'll buy from my local SME. So just to give you an example, I got bought a, a bottle of gin. I'm not a big gin drinker at all. I got bought a local bottle of gin from our local distillery. Two guys that started in a garage that now have an industrial unit. It is really nice stuff. And some friends bought it. They could buy it online. It was in COVID. The guy delivered it to my door. He knocked on the door, put it down, waited for me to pick it up. I said, oh, it is interesting. You do it locally. He did. And he stood there. I asked him, I was so interested. We chatted for the next 45 minutes. I'm sure he had a load of other deliveries to do because he was running the business. But he was delighted, and I was delighted as well, to have a conversation about him, his business, how he got to be, what his plans were. It was just such a night. It wasn't like I was in a shop. It was a nice, personal buying experience. Now, if I bought that from a large conglomerate and got it delivered by Amazon, well, one, he wouldn't have, he'd have been off on his van before I could even open the door. It wouldn't have been a pleasurable experience. I got that because he was an SME. Now, I know, through that conversation, I said, how are you struggling with all the regulation that goes around? Distilleries, that's what they are. And he said, you wouldn't believe paperwork, compliance and regulation and boots I have to jump through, whether I produce one bottle or a million bottles. I think that's part of the issue for broking or your business or any, any SME, whether you deal with one customer or a million customers, what you have to do is exactly the same. I think that's completely inappropriate not but of course government don't get it they go no 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 the same you mean whether it's one customer or a million customers they get and actually it, it's not it's not really fair um, one of we... our one of our clients is um a has a specialism in micro pubs and microbreweries um and as you know one of our specialisms is in setting up our clients with their own podcast and video channels around their specific niche areas. Um, and, and we do all the editing. So I was watching one of these videos, uh, video interviews that my client and one of his prospects had done about the micropub industry. And he was talking about exactly that, that the, the levies and the, the charges and the hoops that were due to be brought in, I think this, um, around this time, uh, 
for them and how on the top of COVID it was just a killer and he was running a big petition to try and make um, make the government differentiate between you know the one-man band local micro pub distillery etc and some of the the bigger players and I and I think it's so interesting um, one of the the um, conversations I had recently was uh, with uh, uh, Simon Johnson from Markell and he sent me over there their white paper that they did in early 2020 and it, it, they were the white paper conducted a lot of research and one of the things that they were saying is that 99% of all UK businesses employ less than 250 uh, people and the micro micro businesses i.e. 0 to 9 employees is over five and a half million that makes up our economy so exactly what you're saying if everybody's competing for the the one percent pie there's a problem let's look at this 99 percent of the pie and see what we can do to support them back to the when the government wants to talk to the insurance industry they don't talk to all the little brokers they talk to the big you know they'll talk to an aon or a marsh or to an alliance or an axa they don't represent these little brokers and it's the same in any industry whether it's the brewing industry or the farming industry they talk that they only talk because they think that represents their industry if you go back to the numbers that you've just articulated they need to ignore that part of the industry and talk smaller bit the problem for them is that talking to five million is really difficult it probably wouldn't be via the online routes you get it's we it's the default unfortunately not just of Westminster but of local authorities as well it's, it, we need to get out of habit we've had since probably post-war that the big is beautiful they, they're the ones we need to listen to because ultimately if you want to put a lot of the things right whether that's climate change or you know saving the planet from plastic it'll be the people of the north to nine and you know covid's a classic example um, whilst the furlough scheme was great it was designed for large organizations the rishi sunaks of this the chancellor went oh yeah it'd be great when there's a massive payroll and hr department who can do all this work for hmrc but when you loaded it onto a business that had nine employees that had to do it themselves it was horrendous so yeah, I couldn't agree more that we as a society, whilst we keep saying, oh, we love the little micro SME business and don't we get better service? And, and you look at all their TripAdvisor stuff, they get the better support as well. Mm. But our default as a society is always to go back and the big. Um, and, we, and we're definitely missing a trick because as you've identified, we are still a nation of shop people. We're micro businesses. I think if you go to the continent, it's slightly different. They don't have quite that, that same attitude to running small businesses. I think if you're a Frenchman or a German, you tend to want to work for a larger organisation. But I think we're slightly different. Yeah. I know Bieber has tries to represent the smaller broker, but they don't really. The thing, it's a self-defeating prophecy. So when Bieber say, the little brokers will you serve on this panel of the little brokers they go no because i haven't got the time but if you don't devote the time you'll never get your voice heard that's the problem 
So again, I'm not blaming Beaver. They do what much as they can. But the people that sit on Beaver tend to be people that have retired, as in they're not representing what goes on at the moment, or slightly larger brokers don't understand the, the what the little broker is going through. And I imagine it is the you know I, I serve on another board where the retail consortium is is represented. Well, the guy that sits on it was from a major worldwide corporate, let alone a UK corporate. He hasn't got a clue what the smaller guy, you know, on the high street is trying to do. And I think that's 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 the problem of the society. Not that we're going to change it overnight, but well, I'm interviewing Steve White in a, in a month or so. Uh, so I'll put your proposition to him and see what Beaver are going to do. <laughs> because it is, um, but if you go back to the broking community of that two and a half thousand regional brokers, at least fifty percent will be the broker with a GWP less than two million, probably. And you go, how are they represented? Because they're not. And that's part of what the insurance brokers podcast is about. That's because my, uh, so, well, I say my our sort of idea behind it is to talk to a whole cross-section of the industry about challenges and what you can do about it and advice and support to try and um, maybe equalize that slightly get some of the it's you know the, the smaller end heard and that kind of thing it's the same with insurance and whilst Allianz and AXA and Zurich and all that all of those have their place they try to be all things to all people, which again is completely wrong because you, you know, you're gonna fail if you try to do that. Again, the ABI or government, if they want a view of insurance, will get the CEO of those organizations around a table, whether that's a board table or you know, a drink in the but they don't represent the views of the insurance industry because below the big composites there is a plethora of mgas and specialist insurers who probably have a different view of the world i worked for ecclesiastical for a long time who are a relatively i was going to say small they're probably more medium sized they're still a specialist but compared to the alliances and the rsas and the zurich they are they are completely different as is the hiscox and there are and they're quite large in comparison. There are some really small insurers at the bottom who will have a completely different world view of the world to those large composites. But those views are very rarely heard. And it's the same in the broking community. On that note, if anybody is listening to this conversation who would like to respond, add their two pence, uh, or just have a, a conversation from any walk of the insurance industry, please do get in touch because I would love to chat to you. Uh, email me sarah.myerscoff at bostontullis.co.uk and we can have a conversation very similar to uh, the conversation that you've just heard. I think, Ian, that is a really, really um, interesting uh, uh, topic of conversation and I do hope people uh, email in and we can set up some more conversations like this because I think you're absolutely right there is a massive proportion of the insurance industry that isn't heard and I would love to talk to them about particularly what their challenges are at the moment 
and particularly prior to me having a conversation with Steve in, uh, in a month or so. So thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullis Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.